Well, good morning once again, and happy Sabbath. Today we continue our series on a new world, and if you recall, the Sabbath before Thanksgiving, I gave a message on, on a new world in the sense of how should we treat people that are new to our circle, right? And we gleaned lessons from the first Thanksgiving celebration when the Native Americans and the pilgrims celebrated that first Thanksgiving together, where the Native Americans treated them with love and respect and welcomed them as one of their own. Uh, We learned that Sabbath that Jesus tells us that we should treat strangers as we treat ourselves, the golden rule, right? And then the following Sabbath, we learned about Adam and Eve and how they came from an unfallen world, a world of beauty, and because of their sin, they were now going to come into a world of sickness and death. But God still prepared them for it. God made them garments of skin to make sure that they were going to be prepared for this fallen world. And the lesson that we got out of that is that God, if we come to him, prepares us for obstacles and challenges in the fallen world that we live in. Then two weeks ago, the message was on Noah and how Noah, after the great flood, was really a new world experience for him and his family. Everything was destroyed. Everything was covered in, in water. And then once the water receded, uh, vegetation was not um, abundant. So they had to eat meat and such. And, and what we learned there is that Noah was traumatized by the great flood. He was traumatized by it. And so the, the lesson that we take from his experience is in this time of year when people are celebrating the Christmas holiday, let us remember that there are those who are also missing loved ones because they probably passed away around this time. Or maybe this might be the first Christmas that they're celebrating without their husband or their spouse or their adult child. So it was a message of empathy to remember those who suffer in this time of year. And today's message is called Lost and Confused. Lost and and Confused. One of the most confusing times in my life is when I uh, left eighth grade, middle school, Ciela. I was in middle school, and my middle school was small. I mean, I could get from one side of the school to the other side within a few minutes, and, and I, I loved being an eighth grader because I thought I was the big man on campus, right? My friends and I, we thought we were special. Then we went to high school, which was a few miles down the road to Stephen F. Austin High School. Let me put into perspective how many, school, uh, or how many students were in that school. When I was a senior and I graduated in that school, we graduated with 800 students. So the school had more than 2,000 students in it. When I went to the first day of class as being a ninth grader, I found that experience to be confusing and scary 
Because when I used to think I was big man on campus coming into high school for the first time ever as a ninth grader, I realized I literally was not big man on campus because standing only 5'9", while all my other classmates were like 6'3", I realized I was a little tiny shrimp. And then on top of that, here I had my, my schedule for my first day of class, and I'm trying to look for my locker, and there's masses of people around me looking for their classes, talking with their friends, laughing and goofing off, and I'm trying to get to my locker, and I'm bumping into people, and some kids are pushing me and saying, hey, watch out, freshman, you know? So it was a confusing time. I was scared out of my own wits. And so what did did I do? Well, finally, I found one of my classmates from middle school, and we connected. And he said he felt scared, and I said I felt scared. And so we said, you know what, let's stick together. So that way it's not so confusing. You know, life can be like that sometimes. It can be confusing. And the story that we're going to look at today is the story when the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they too were lost and confused. However, that was not the original plan. The original plan was not to confuse the Israelites. The original plan from God was this. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24, God says, You will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. Let's break, that, let's break down this verse right now. And I'm going to go backwards. First of all, God said that they're going to receive a land that's flowing with milk and honey. At this point, we've talked about this text in other sermons before. At this point, you know well and good what milk and honey means. It's symbolic. It's a land full of rich soil. It's a land where you can raise, uh, raise cattle or goats or other animals that can provide you milk and meat. While on the other hand, honey is symbolic of plants that can grow there because the soil is rich, Right? Honey does not only mean honey that comes from bees, but also the, the sap that comes from trees, the liquid that's inside the plant. So this is an area of land that is, that is going to be substantial for the people of Israel to, to become a nation. So that's the first point I wanted to uh, point out here at, on this text. And then the second point is, Who's giving this land? It's God. It's God who says, I will give it to you as an, as an inheritance. I am giving you this land. It's a gift. Therefore, when God says, I'm going to give you something, there's going to be very little work on our part to do. In the same case for the Israelites. He's promising that he's going to give it to them as an inheritance. What does that mean? Inheritance. He's telling the people of Israel that you are my people. And I am your God. And therefore, since I am your God, I am your heavenly father, there is going to be promises for your future generations that this land will continue to be a part of your people. 
even to this day, even to this day on what we're seeing with in Israel against Hamas and, and the Jews there right now, they're, they're still fighting for that area of land, right? Even to this day, I will give it to you as an inheritance. And then the third point I want to make here is that we do have a responsibility when God gives us a gift. What should we do with it? Receive it. Take it. In this term, possess it. What does that mean to possess it? It means to go ahead and make it your home. Do with it on how you want to establish it. I'm sure when Centura, now Avent Health, was thinking about making a hospital here, they had to make all of, the, all of the plans, right? They had to make all of the plans on what type of services are they going to provide? What type of uh, departments are they going to have in order to carry out these services? What is it going to cost? So in order to possess something, you have to work out the details. Just like when you buy your house. What, what, how are you going to uh, use the rooms? Maybe this room is going to be a bedroom, or maybe it's going to be an office, or maybe it's going to be a home gym that you want to have. Nonetheless, you're going to take it, you're going to possess it, and you're going to make it the way you see fit. But the way you should make it should always glorify God. It should always glorify God. So that's the three things we should focus on here is that God is giving them a, hint, a, a inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey, and that they are to possess it. Now, what happened in the story? When does this possession actually start to take place? Well, it takes place in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Moses and the Israelites, Moses especially receives the instruction from God, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. This is the instruction from God. The Israelites, as you know, the context of this story, they had left Egypt. They had been rescued by God out of the grips of Pharaoh. They've been rescued from Egypt, and now they have been walking through the wilderness, through the Sinai Peninsula, and they have come to the point where they're about to enter Canaan. And so before they're going to enter Canaan, God gives instruction to send spies, to, to scout it out, to scope the area and see what it's all about. And so what is the mission of these 12 spies? So Moses identifies who these 12 spies are. Two of the ones you know are Caleb and Joshua. And now Moses gives them the mission. Here's the mission. Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So they went up, the 12 men, the scouts, went up and explored the land. It tells us in the... uh, 
following verses, I think verse 24, that they were there for 40 days. 40 days looking throughout the land, watching and observing and taking fruit from that land. Now, it doesn't tell us that they had interaction, physical interaction or conversations with the with the natives there or with the people that live there. We don't know if they're really native or not, but there was no interaction nonetheless. Finally, after the 40 days, it tells us that the 12 scouts come back. So here's the report. Continuing on Numbers 13, verse 32 and 33, it tells us that the spies or the scouts spread among the Israelites. Now, I should say 10 of the scouts spread among the Israelites What kind of a report? A bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our eyes, and we looked the same to them. To them, we looked like grasshoppers as well. So this is important for us to see, that they spread. Ten of the twelve spies, ten of the twelve scouts, spread a bad report about the land. Why did they spread a bad report? one of the things that we can come to as far as the conclusion goes is that they were afraid of these giants. Now, if you remember the Nephilim, the Nephilim were mentioned before the flood. So some of the question, one of the questions that theologians ask is, if the flood came and destroyed everyone except Noah and his family, then how are these Nephilim alive? That is, this verse here is one of the biggest question marks in all of the Bible that stumps a lot of, of theologians. The point I want to make today is, I don't think that really matters. Because, just like the Israelites, if we focus on that too much, we can make something that is insignificant and make it too much of a problem. Kind of like making a, what's that saying? Making an anthill or a molehill out of an anthill? Is that the saying? Or am I saying that wrong? Making a mountain out of an anthill, right? Molehill, yeah. A molehill is nothing compared to a mountain. A mountain is like huge. I mean, we live here where there's mountains, 14ers, right? And I never realized how significant a 14er was until I tried to climb one. And when I did climb one, I was finally tired by the time I got to the top of it. So, so it's not an easy task. So, but can we do that as humans sometimes? Can we sometimes look at something and make it a bigger problem than what it really is? That's what's happening in this story. Here's how I explain the Nephilim. I believe, as some commentaries point out, that what they were saying here, the, the ten scouts... We're comparing the people like that to of the Nephilim. Now you have to remember, Moses in, in this time period was hundreds of years later after the great flood. So they were never around to see the original Nephilim. 
They were never around to see the original Nephilim. They wouldn't know how big they were or how grand they were. If anything, all they heard was stories about these these people who were well-renowned and and huge and intimidating. And so when they saw the locals in the Canaan land, they compared them to the Nephilim, right? We have sayings too. One of our sayings is, I'm so hungry, I can eat a what? I can eat a horse, right? I'm so hungry, I can eat a horse. But am I going to really eat a horse, Ciela? No. First of all, my wife loves horses. And if I ate a horse, she's going to divorce me or leave me, right? So it's just a saying. But what does that saying mean? I'm so hungry, I can eat a horse really means what? Yeah, I can eat a lot. That's how hungry I am. I can eat a lot right now. So I believe the the 10 scouts were describing these big intimidating people as that of like the Nephilim. And because of that fear, they didn't want to go into that land. Because of that fear, they wrote this bad report to discourage the rest of the people. So now we have to go to the Bible and let's turn to Numbers verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. Numbers 14 verse 1. Here is how the people responded to this bad report. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. When you see that word community, remember the Israelites were broken up in tribes. There's 12 tribes, right? So they had 12 groups, 12 large groups. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. Why were they weeping? They were afraid. They were scared. All the Israelites grumbled. I want you to focus on that word grumble. That means that grumbling comes from inside this heavy groaning. That Have you ever been so worried that your stomach is in knots, right? That your stomach is troubled as well, that you can't eat or you can't sleep because your stomach is keeping you up? This is the kind of problem that they're experiencing. All, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword of these giants. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? A land of sin. That's what Egypt was. A land of sin. And according to them, these giants were so scary that it would be better to go back to the land of sin. But isn't life all about progression? Are we not supposed to progress in life? Would it make sense for me as a pastor to say, I don't want to be a pastor anymore. I found it very enlightening to be in 10th grade. So I think I'm going to go back to 10th grade. That wouldn't make sense because we're supposed to progress in life. It's called growth. But sometimes there's a few things in life that can just scare us so much we feel like we can't move on anymore. It can scare us so much, we become lost and confused. That's what's happening to the Israelites here. I'm going to read this again. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. Do you see what's, what's said here in the Bible? It says that they were, 
raising their voices, and they wept aloud. It's not, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not saying anything that makes sense. They're being emotional. They're being lost and confused. They're no longer being rational about this whole situation. And we're talking about the majority of Israel here that's doing this. Until finally, we come to verse 6. Verse 5, actually. Let's go to verse 5. It says, Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Meaning that they were discouraged. The leaders of Israel were discouraged until verse 6. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, Jephunneh, uh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fight back against him. And do not be afraid of the people of this land, of Canaan. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So amongst this big mass group of people, we at least have two young men in Joshua and Caleb who have great faith in God, who are able to think rationally and encourage the people to say, hey, let's keep on going through. God saved us from Egypt. God saved us from Pharaoh. Guess what? God's promise, let's remember God's promise. What was God's promise in our key text? He will give us this land. Meaning, I believe Joshua and Caleb truly believe that if they were just to walk into that land, God will perform another miracle. He would. But how short-sighted were the other people, the other 10 spies, as well as the majority of the people, that they just continued to grumble and they said, no way, Jose, we're not doing it. We're going to find another route. We're going to find another way. And that's why they end up spending 40 years in the desert. What's the consequence of their choice? Well, the consequence is this. In Numbers 14.34, if you were to continue to read, it tells us that they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Some people say that God is, is, so, is horrible for punishing the people in this manner, but, but we have to remember consequences sometimes are just natural to the choices we make. If I choose not to go that route, and I-25 is the fastest route, to go to what's north of us, to Denver, but I choose to go to 470 all the way around Denver, right? And then to get to, if you're following me here, to get on Arapaho, or not Arapaho, but Quebec, and then go back west, that would add a 30 minutes, 30 minutes to my trip. 30 minutes. Now, what was the natural consequence of that choice of mine if I decide to take the secondary route as opposed to the straight route? The natural consequence is more time. 
Who's to really blame there? Is it God or would it be me that made the poor choice? It would be me. And so that's what the Israelites decided to do here. They said, we're not going to go through this route where we're going to have to fight these people. And hence, the natural consequence is that they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. Another consequence is that 20 years or older would die in the desert. This is in Numbers 14, verse 28 and 29. Now, if you were to look in Psalm chapter 90, put your finger on this story that we're reading right now. If you were to go to Psalm chapter 90... And if I can get someone to read verse 10 for me. If someone wanted to read it, can I give you a mic? And would you be okay in reading it in the mic? Renee? Okay. Psalm 90, verse 10. What does that say? This is the NIV. Mm -hmm. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they pass quickly and we fly away. Mm. Amen. Thank you, Renee. You know who, who wrote this part of the psalm? Moses. Look at the top of your uh, title of Psalm 90. Mine says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. According to Moses, in his time, he, we can quote him, he believes that the length of our days is what? 70 years or 80. That was the average age of people back then. But look at this. Because of their poor choice, as a group, their life was shortened in the desert. Their, their life was shortened in the desert, and we can understand why. The desert was a very harsh place. It was not abundant of, of nutrients. It was not abundant of of good weather that would be good for your body, for your, um, what's the word I'm looking for, for your outlook. Instead, because of this harsh climate, if you add 40 years to 20, people were dying around 60. Maybe they would reach 70 to 60 years old. But the promise that God made is that no one that's 20 years or older is going to see, and that's the third consequence, they're not going to see the promised land. Now, here's the question I have to ask because I want to make this applicable to who we are today as a church. I want to make this applicable to us. Can we be the ones that are guilty of stagnant growth as well? Whether it's for the church setting or maybe in your home or maybe in your career, can you be the one that's actually guilty of causing stagnation? Because if God is the one that's promising, I will give it to you. And the Israelites were the ones saying, no, I don't want to go into that land because of those great giants. You know what the Israelites did then at that point? They stopped God from performing a miracle. Hmm. Can your fears get so big that you may rob God of giving you a miracle? Just think about that. Hmm. So it it made me think in my own life. I had to reflect as I was writing this message. I had to reflect on my own life. Where were areas 
Where were areas in my life because of maybe stubbornness, maybe fear, maybe anger, maybe just out of uh, 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 not wanting to progress or grow in life? Where did I rob God from giving me a miracle? That's one of the main points in this story. Our main text, our key text, God is the one that's saying, you will possess their land once I give it to you. But you have to trust me. You see, this story is also a story of a new world. This is the first time in the Bible where we see the Israelites coming together as a nation. But they were so brought down by Egypt and by the enslavement that they had lived for for 400 years so afraid because they have been beaten. Their courage was beaten out of them by the Egyptians. Their courage was beaten out of them. That anything that God told them, promised them, they were thinking, no, but we are defeated already. We're defeated already by these giants. But yet they haven't even faced the giants. Can we rob God of the opportunity of giving us blessings, of giving us miracles. And the fourth thing I want us to look at here on this text is this part. And I left this for last for us to think about. What is the main reason that God wanted to give them a land flowing with milk and honey and that they would possess it is so that they could be set apart from all the other nations. All the other nations had idolatry, All the other nations were making sacrifices to false gods. All other nations feared their gods, literally feared them like afraid. But this God, Elohim, wanted to make them into a nation so they can be an example to all other nations to say there is one true God that you don't need to perform these unnecessary sacrifices to. There is this one true God who loves you, who longs to dwell with you, to be with you. There is this one true God. That's why I'm going to give you this land, not just for your own benefit, but really to be an example for all other nations. So how can we apply this to our situation today? Has God not blessed us as a church? Has God not blessed us to be a people to come together and to be a potential light to the town of Castle Rock? Now, has God not blessed us with the very physical place to have church? And how are we using this place? In the glory of God's name, I hope. Right? Do we bring people more into the church Or do more people leave because of us? That's just a question I'm asking. It's a lesson that I saw in this story today. And if Christmas is going to have any meaning this year, we've got to answer those questions. Sincerely, honestly, as individuals, and collectively as a church family. It's something I leave with y'all this morning. Now I'm going to end it with this 
thought that if you were to continue to read Numbers 14, I think, uh, not 14, 21, I'm sorry, Numbers 21, and you look at verse 4 to 9, verse 4 to 9, this is the experience with the snakes, okay? If you recall, because of their stubbornness and they decided not to go into Canaan the original way, plan A, right? They decided to wander in the desert even more. Because of that choice, one of the consequences is that they came to an area that had lots of snakes. Who here loves snakes? You like snakes, Sela? Yeah? Okay. Have you ever been around a poisonous snake? Can you tame a poisonous snake? No, I'm not good at at snakes that are uh, not poisonous, um, let alone with poisonous snakes, I wouldn't know what to do with them. Nonetheless, they came to this area where there were snakes, and a lot of the Israelites started to get bit by them, and a lot of them were dying. Fortunately, a credit to the Israelites, they attributed this to their sinfulness towards God. So they repented, okay, they repented. Let's just go ahead and read the story. In verse 6, it says, The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned. So a credit to them. They realized, hey, it's out. We, we, we realize we're in this situation because of what we decided to do, right? We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to God for us to take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Uh, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Okay, a lot of people are confused by this. I thought God is not a God who, God tells us not to worship any idols. Did God not just tell the people to make an idol and to, to, to worship it? No. See, here's what's happening here. Nowhere does it say that God told them to worship this bronze snake, okay? But just to look upon it. Now, why was it important to look upon it? It's because God was trying to tell the people that I'm turning your fears because that's one of the themes that we're talking about today, fears that put, cause us to stop in our tracks. God is turning the fear of snakes and anything else that they have fear of and showing them that there's nothing to be afraid of these things if you look at me as your guide, as your source. That's the symbolism behind this. God is taking what was a fear of the people and showing them that there is nothing to be afraid if you walk with me. Okay? You're following with me here, right? Any questions here? No. Okay, now let's go to John chapter 3. You know this chapter very well because it's perhaps the most popular chapter in all of the Bible. John chapter 3, and we're going to end with this. John chapter 3, you have uh, probably read this 
verse many times, and you're probably thinking, what is Jesus talking about uh, when he's telling this to Nicodemus? John chapter 3, verse 14. John chapter 3, verse 14. Here's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Remember the context of this story. Nicodemus came to Jesus because he wants to know about spiritual truth. So Jesus tells Moses, or not Moses, Nicodemus, in verse 14 of John 3, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Then here's the context of verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So that snake experience that Moses and the Israelites had in the book of Numbers, in the Old Testament, was also going to be used by God as a foretelling of the power of Jesus. So when you go to John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus brings it full circle and says the reason why the Israelites failed, the reason why the Israelites could not go into the promised land through that direct route is because of their unfaithfulness and their unwillingness to look at Jesus, to look at God. And so Jesus brings it full circle, and he says, if you look at me, if you believe me, if you lift me up in your life, if you lift me up in your life, then you have salvation. Nothing to be afraid of. Snakes, giants, floods, anything that this world can throw at us, if Jesus is by our side, then who can we be afraid of? No one. And that's the message today. If you and I want to be not lost and confused, then we should set our eyes upon Jesus. If we are not to be lost and confused, we should set our eyes upon Jesus individually and collectively as a church, then we can be set apart to be an example for others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Blessed Heavenly Father, there's no way to say thank you, to express gratitude towards the goodness that you have showed upon us. And I also, in taking lesson from this message today, I hope and pray that we have not missed the mark, that we have not missed the opportunity or missed blessings from you because perhaps our stubbornness as a church or perhaps because of fear that we might have. And so from this day forth, I pray that you may give us your spirit that we can look at things through the lens of Jesus and have hope. And I pray, O Lord, that the plans that we set forth as a church may always be uh, aligned with you, O Lord, and with the mission that you want for Castle Rock. I pray for faithfulness, both for individuals of this church and as a church collectively. May we be faithful to all the things that you bless us with, to all the gifts. Whether the promise is a, a land flowing with milk and honey or it's a the church building place, or if it is bringing more people into the fold of our congregation, 
I pray, O Lord, that we may be faithful stewards to all of these things that you gift us with. I pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus, so that way Jesus' name may be praised and called, uh, called on in this town of Castle Rock. In his name I pray, amen.